King Balak of Moab hired the prophet Balaam to curse Israel. But what happened? God turned that curse into a blessing on his people. (laughs) So we have God redeeming his people, guiding his people, blessing his people. Evidence number four, the Acacia Grove to Gilgal. Both of these places are significant to Joshua chapters 2 to 5. The Acacia Grove, or Shittim, was the last place east of the Jordan before they actually entered the Promised Land. And where was the first place that they entered after they entered the Promised Land? Gilgal. You have the last place and the first place. What is it communicating? God is faithful to do what he promises to his people. He is faithful to deliver them into the promised land that he promised to give them. Both sites marked God's faithfulness to bring them into the land of promise. So what does this evidence prove? God's faithful. That's what it proves. God is faithful to his people. He redeemed them. He guides them. He protects them from evil plans. He gifts them the land that he promises them. He's always faithful to his people. And why did he do this? Look at verse 5, at the end of verse 5 right there. Why did God do this? So that you may acknowledge or know the Lord's righteous acts. So you may know his righteous acts. God's works were to result in worship. That was the point. It was to effect change in his people. It It was to result in a commitment of faith to God as they saw God deliver them from Egypt and carry them through 40 years in the wilderness and bring them into the promised land, taking curses and turning them into blessings. It was to change them. It was to affect faith, resulting in a commitment of faith to God. Instead, God's people forgot him, which is why he tells them in verse 5, to remember these things. You need to call these things to mind. You need to remember these things. The word for remember right here isn't speaking about just kind of recalling their history as if to live in the past. Instead, it means to actualize the past in the present. To actualize the past in the present. That means that God's past acts or to have ongoing effects in our lives. That's what it means. It's to effect change in us when we hear about a past act of God to redeem us. Remembering his faithfulness would lead to their faithfulness. The reason that God's people have done what's forbidden is why? Because they've forgotten what God has done, which reflects his very character, which means that they've forgotten who God is. He's a redeemer. That's how he's able to redeem you. He's just. That's why he's going to judge your enemies. They forgot these things. They forgot, which led them to do what was forbidden. We often see those two things linked in the Old Testament. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. Moses says, be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. And then to do what? Don't forget and make an idol for yourselves in the shape of anything he has forbidden you. You have forgetting with doing what is forbidden. For the Lord, your God, is a consuming fire, a jealous God. 
Forgetting the Lord led Israel to do what was forbidden. It led to false worship. When they forgot him, they turned away from him. Not only was this the case with Israel back then, but is it not the case for us today? Is it not a threat for us today? We can be prone to commit spiritual amnesia. Spiritual amnesia. Where we forget what God has done for us through the death and resurrection of Jesus and we live like it has no bearing on our lives. Spiritual amnesia. Think about how we might show symptoms of this deadly disease in our lives. Take grumbling and simple complaining, for example. When we grumble about anything, what have we forgotten? But that God is good, that he's loving, that he's still sovereign over our circumstances. Every sinful complaint about circumstances is ultimately a complaint against the God who is sovereign over those circumstances. A helpful question to ask, I think, in our discipleship to the Lord, just between you and the Lord, but also in your discipling relationships, you and others uh, in this room, a helpful question for us to ask, I think, whenever we gather together throughout the week is how we have forgotten God when we sin. When you confess your sins to one another, you should ask yourself, how have I forgotten God with this particular sin? What have I forgotten about God when I become anxious or whenever I despair of life itself? What is that revealing in my heart that I am not believing about God? In general, when we sin, we've forgotten who God is and what he's done for us. And if we're not careful, that can actually lead to false worship. This is the case I think we see right here in verses 6 and 7, where Israel approaches the Lord not out of reliance, but out of ritual, out of empty religion. If you look there in verses 6 and 7, Micah says, Should they come before him with burnt offerings? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? Or should they sacrifice their firstborn for their sin? Well, the the answer is emphatically no. They shouldn't do any of those things. That's the answer. They thought that they could manipulate God with their gifts. That the more important the sacrifice, the more favor they earned with God. That's what was in their thinking. King Ahaz in Micah's day offered his sons as a burnt offering to God in 2 Chronicles 28. An act that God never never commanded. He did what God forbid because he did not know God. That's why he did it. They thought that their sacrifices secured their salvation rather than remembering that God already secured it for them through the exodus. Their sacrifices don't secure their salvation. They're an expression that they've been saved and redeemed from Egypt. Do you see the connection right there? They forgot God and they did what God forbid. Forgetting leads to false worship. It produces a faith that is more pragmatic than personal. It was irrelevant whether you believed it or not. What what was more important was whether or not it worked. Hey, do these sacrifices work? Do we just need to keep on throwing up heifers on the altar? Let's get it going. They thought their faith was more pragmatic. It was about their performance. And this empty religion mimicked the pagan nations around them. 
viewing their relationship with God as if it was like a contract with requirements to perform where the relationship is is secondary or is not even important at all. But God did not enter into a contract with his people. He entered into a covenant with them, a covenant that was built on a relationship where the requirements of that covenant actually help that relationship. They serve that relationship. This is why God calls Israel. Did you notice this? In verses 3 and 5. Look back there at verses 3 and 5. What does God call his people? My people. My people. And he commands them to remember what he's done in verse 5. Brothers and sisters, God's righteous acts reflect his loving relationship with his people. This covenant is relational. It's personal. These are my people with God. Remembering the character and the righteous acts of the Lord leads to right worship. This is the antidote to spiritual amnesia. The remedy is to remember who God is and what he has done. That's the remedy to spiritual amnesia. To remember who God is and what he has done. So when you sin and ask yourself how you've forgotten God, you need to respond by remembering God's righteous character and his righteous acts in Christ. That's how you respond. When you sin, ask yourself, how have I forgotten God? In whatever way that is, then you ask yourself, okay, what do I need to remember about who God is and what he has done for me? If you're angry and you've forgotten God, right? you've forgotten that God is, is sovereign, that he is in control, well, then meditate on Isaiah 45 and bask in the grandeur and in the glory of God's sovereignty. Go back to Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, where all things are created through Christ and for Christ, not ultimately for you. <laughs> Go back to those, pa- those passages and remember what God has done for you. That leads you to right living. It leads to right worship. We will not do what God requires of us if we forget God's righteous acts. That's the point. And what exactly does God require of us? What does he require of us? Look at verse 8. Famous passage. He requires us to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. Now, in Micah's context, acting justly meant not stealing people's land, taking bribes, cheating one another, lying to one another. It meant rendering fair and impartial judgments in court, all things that they were not doing. That's what it looks like to act justly or to do justice in Micah's context. Because Israel did not walk humbly with God by accepting his values as their own, they did not love their neighbor as themselves, by doing what is right by them. But Israel isn't the only one who hasn't done what God has required of them. We didn't either. All of us have not met God's requirement when we come into this life. All of us come into this world with a corrupt heart that is bent against God in our sin and our rebellion against him. We don't do what is right by God because our hearts are corrupt because we're unrighteous. We don't love faithfulness because we're not faithful to God. We don't walk humbly before God 
because we live like we are God. No one has done what God requires perfectly, except one. Except one. One who always acted justly, who always loved faithfulness and walked humbly with God. One who fulfilled God's requirement for you and me by living the life that we failed to live. Dying the death that we deserve to die on the cross for our sin. And rising from death to life to give us the life that we cannot earn by our own strength and empty religion. Instead, the once for all time sacrifice, the human sacrifice that was sufficient to pay for sin once for all time, God actually gave in his son, Jesus. No need to offer human sacrifice firstborn right there in verses 6 and 7 because God has already done that for us. Brothers and sisters, we can only do what God requires as we remember the only one who met our requirement before God. We can only act justly if we've been justified in Christ. After all, the greatest injustice against God is our own sin against him. We first need to be made right with God before we can do right by others. Now you're seeing the connection with verses 6 to 8 and verses 3 to 5. This is why the heart of Christianity is first about a person rather than a proposition or a practice. To believe in Jesus is to enter into a relationship with God, which results then in right living. And through faith, Jesus has given us his spirit to be able to do the very things that God requires of us today in verse 8. To be able to act justly, to love faithfulness, to walk humbly with our God, or to summarize that, to love God and neighbor. We cannot do those things without the indwelling presence of the Spirit empowering us to be able to do those very things. So what does that look like practically? What does verse 8 look like practically? In the church, it means loving one another by obeying God in relation to one another. So we treat one another with honesty and with fairness, with kindness, with love. We seek to uphold the image of God in one another and how we treat each other. We don't lie and cheat each other. And by doing so, what we're doing is we're actually giving the world a picture of what a just and righteous people ought to look like. So if there are any impoverished or disadvantaged among us, then we should be first in line to help those as we are committed to one another. We have a responsibility by virtue of our proximity to one another to help each other. This ought to be the first line of defense, right? When Husbands have that proximity of relationship to their wives, that responsibility, parents to their children, church members to one another. Why? Because we have committed to give love and care to one another. Everything that we outline in our church covenant with one another. And so if there are poor, impoverished, disenfranchised among us, we have a responsibility to take care of them within the church. More importantly, the church acts justly by proclaiming the gospel, the very thing that Jesus instituted the church to do, to make disciples of all nations. How do we see that going out in the book of Acts? Proclamation of the word of God through churches. That's how that happens. That's the mission of the church. That's what he's instituted the church to do, to proclaim the gospel. We're doing in one sense what Micah does right here. What is he doing but calling the people back to God? 
And that's what we do when we go out to proclaim the gospel to our neighbor, to our coworker, to our friends. We're calling them to be made right with God by turning to Christ so that God would declare them righteous, not because of anything that they have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done for them. We want them to be able to do what God requires of them by looking to the one who did it perfectly. We want to call them to repentance. And then individually, what what happens is we scatter throughout the week into our community. We seek to help the hurting by doing right by them according to God's word. We seek to correct injustice as we have greater proximity to it. If there are unjust laws in our community, then we use our right to vote to be able to change that law, to make sure that good laws are actually applied fairly. That's That's part of how you do that and being able to have the right to be able to vote. For others who are victims of injustice, you seek to provide personal help, acts of charity to them, as you have greater proximity to them, whether they're in your neighborhood or through a local uh, mercy ministry that you're involved with. As you have proximity to them, you seek to do good by them so as to reflect God through those works. And obviously, these are not done without giving them the hope of the gospel in the midst of hopeless situations that they may feel like that they are in. You see those two combined. These are just examples of what acting justly and loving faithfulness and walking with God humbly looks like. But what happens when you've not done what God requires? Point one is the longest. Point two and point three are the shortest, just to let you know. What happens when you have not done what God requires? Let's look at point number two, the judgment that God renders. God's people have done the very opposite thing of what he requires of them. Rather than walking humbly with God, they followed the practices and policies of Omri and Ahab, as you see right there in verse 16. Both were wicked kings in the northern kingdom who introduced Baal worship in Israel. Their actions introduced injustice and apostasy. The Lord's prophets, like Elijah, were persecuted under their reign. Naboth was killed for Ahab to have a vineyard for himself. They're characterized by injustice thinking that they walk in that, not humbly by God, but ultimately that they are God. Not only that, rather than loving faithfulness, what do God's people do? What are they full of in verse 12? They are full of violence. Their mouths are deceitful and full of lies. And because they don't walk humbly with God, nor do they love faithfulness, they do not act justly. Instead, they cheat and steal from one another by using Wicked scales and deceitful weights in their business practices right there in verse 11, if you look right there. But the Lord's not going to let them get away with this. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 13 to 16, that those who do such things are an abomination to him. They are detestable to him. And as a result, their punishment fits their crimes. God says in verse 13, I have begun to strike you severely, bringing desolation Because of your sins. In verse 16, speaking of Jerusalem, he says, I will make you a desolate place and the city's residence an object of contempt. You will bear the scorn of my people. They will become desolate at the hands of their enemies who come in to ransack their cities and take them off into captivity. Why? Because they deserve it. Because of their sins, as he says in verse 13. 
And friends, here's the thing. When you look at a text like that, and it feels brutal, recognize that this is what our sins deserve. This is what our sins deserve. Is death not the wage that sin pays us as our master? Disobedience leads to desolation. All of us are unjust because we're sinners. But God is good because he doesn't just wink at our sin or sweep it under the rug. And he will never judge. He will never judge someone who doesn't deserve it. Never. But part of the problem is thinking that at our core, we are good. But God has shown us that at our core, we are corrupt. Right? We are not like a diamond that's impeccable on the inside. And when it gets a little dirt on the outside, you just got to gotta wipe the dirt off of the diamond. Instead, we're corrupt at our core, and only God can make us clean. Friend, if you're not a Christian, recognize that because of our sin, we all deserve God's judgment. We deserve it. And this is the consistent message throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament. Right? God doesn't change from a God of wrath to a God of love from the Old Testament to the New Testament. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. And that's good news because just as certain as your judgment is, so is the promise of salvation. That when God promises salvation to you, that if you turn and repent and trust in him, he's going to give it to you. He does not change from Old Testament to New Testament in his judgment, nor does he change in his salvation that he gives to all that turn to him. God did not leave us in our sin with the only hope of judgment. He sent his son to become desolate on the cross for us. To become the object of contempt that bore the scorn that we deserve because of our sin through his body on the cross. When you repent and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior, God does not change, but you change. You change from an object of scorn to a recipient of salvation. That's gloriously good news. I pray that you will trust in Christ because of that. If you want more information on that, I'm happy to chat with you about that after the service on what that looks like for you. God will render his just judgment because he's just at his core. It's his very character. The question is whether or not it will be paid by Jesus at the cross or by you in the lake of fire. That's the question. The question isn't whether or not we can trust a God who executes judgment, but can you afford to trust a God who doesn't execute judgment? Point number three, the hope God's people rely on. Final point. In these final verses, in chapter 7, verses 1 to 7 right here, Micah describes this desolation. And it's a horror scene. This is a horror scene. In chapter 1, Micah lamented God's coming judgment against his people. Now he's he's lamenting how corrupt his people are. In verse 1, things are so bad, it's like a grape harvest that produces no grapes. Isaiah says a similar thing in Isaiah chapter 5, where God planted a vineyard, he looked for it to produce a harvest, but what came out? 
only rotten grapes. Well, hey, at least rotten grapes came out. (laughs) Here there's nothing. There's a grape harvest, but there are no grapes. Things are so bad that there's no fruit to be found anywhere. The image is that of a fruitless people who are spiritually dead. That's the image. It's so bad that in verse 2, the faithful have completely vanished from the land. There's nobody that's even upright in the land there in verse 2. Just look at verse 2. It's a reminder, I think, of just the universality of everyone's sinful condition before God. None is righteous, no, not one. As we hear over and over again. Romans 3, on and on throughout the Old Testament. In verse 4, Micah says that even the best of them is like a briar, worse than a hedge of thorns. Not great. When the righteous are absent, evil prospers. And not just the leadership, all of Israel is characterized by evil. They're an ancient picture of the Hunger Games. Society itself has utterly fallen apart. (laughs) That's what this is. They shed blood, they demand bribes, they plan evil in verse 3. Evil is so rampant that they can't even rely on a friend or trust a close companion in verse 5. Even one's family structure is completely broken down, where children completely disobey their family or disobey their parents. Their entire family structure, structure of friends, completely demolished. In our scripture reading a moment ago, we saw Jesus allude to this passage in Matthew chapter 10, verse 35. And he alludes to this passage as a reminder to his disciples of what it will cost to follow him. That his coming did not just bring peace, but it actually brought a sword. And it would hit closest to home. That in swearing allegiance to Jesus, it would actually bring division even to those that are closest to you. It's been said that the coming of Jesus forced people to make ultimate decisions that cause inevitable divisions. When you decide to follow Jesus, you're going to encounter opposition. And it may even be from those that you love most. There are probably some of you, that's your story in here. That opposition came from those that you love most. But Jesus is saying that the cost to follow him is actually worth it in the end. And part of bearing your cross in a society that is in moral chaos is looking to the Lord. It's the seemingly hopeless situation that Micah has actually found himself in right here. How do you respond when you look around and it just seems like injustice reigns? It's everywhere. Corruption, everywhere. Where evil is just the norm in society. What do you do? Micah shows us in verse 7. But I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. In Micah, I think we see a biblical pattern of lament. I think we see a pattern for biblical lament. Micah began chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Micah begins with, how sad for me. That's how he begins chapter 7. Now we're in verse 7. And he says, but I will look to the Lord. Biblically, lament follows a path. It moves from turmoil within the soul to trust 
in the God of our salvation. And each step on this pathway teaches us how to move from heartbreak to hope. That's what it does. That's what biblical lament does that Micah is exemplifying right here. He models this pathway. He turns to God. He brings his complaint to God. He asks for God's help. And he trusts as God waits. Turn, complain, ask, trust. The pathway of biblical lament. That's what it looks like. And as we lament as God's new covenant people, we do so in faith. That's what verse 7 is. It's a declaration of faith. And did you see that it comes with a promise, though, at the very end? Look at the very last phrase in verse 7. My God will hear me. My God will hear me. We're not just going to anyone in our weeping. We're waiting by trusting in the God of our salvation. My God. It's personal. This is my God. The one who will right every wrong in the end and return us to home through Christ's return. We may strive to act justly, but see no justice. And in the meantime, we don't give up. But we move from weeping to waiting because the God of our salvation hears us. That's how we do that. So brothers and sisters, do your circumstances lead you to despair or to greater dependence upon the one who's going to save you in the end. Where do they lead you right now in your circumstances of life? To despair or to greater dependence as you wait upon the Lord? This is how point one really merges with point three right here. We avoid despair and we move to dependence upon God by remembering his righteous acts for us in Christ. That's how you do that. Waiting is related to our worship. It's an act of trust in tumultuous times. The one that we worship will lead us to walk in his ways. And sometimes that's going to mean waiting and relying upon God in the darkest hours of your life. God is often going to teach us our greatest lessons in the darkest of times. And when those times come, where are you going to turn? Will you turn to the one who is your hope in life and death? You can do so today. Let's pray. Father, we give praise to you that though our sins deserve eternal condemnation, Lord, you have acted in righteous ways on our behalf through the death and resurrection of your son. Lord, we pray that we would continually, in the midst of despair, in the midst of looking out in the world and seeing injustice and thinking there is nothing that we can do, Lord, we pray that we would not move toward hopelessness, but rather to the one who is our hope in the midst of hopeless situations. Lord, we pray that you would guide us from weeping to waiting because we trust in you and you have given us the promise that you will hear us. Help us to trust in you, the God of our salvation, when that salvation seems to be long in coming. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.